0: I'm a bitch. Welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. This is a show where I do improvised horror stories. The audience submits the titles, and then I improvise them from there. If you have any titles to submit, you can send them to quarantinespookshow at gmail.com or by any means of direct communication. Tonight's episode is going to be a little bit different, besides the fact that it's a time of year where I started to record it outside and I started to play synth, but I did a recording a couple nights ago, and due to some severe technical difficulties, the audio was unsalvageable. the snafu from two weeks ago was bad, but this was beyond repair. But I was really proud of the stories that I recorded. And I was pretty upset that they wouldn't exist in the world in some way. So what I decided to do was to retell these stories. show mostly has a, has an improv bent, but since this is, uh, these would be stories that I've already told, it won't have the, quite the same random spontaneity that the other 59 episodes have had, but I still think it's going to be a unique experience. Kick back, relax, and as summer lulls over, let's get started. And this first story is called Saliva Obsession. Richard was a man that lived. At the age of 61, much of his life was behind him. He's traveled across the North American continent, in England and parts of France, a brief stint in Russia. He's had many conversations with many people. One thing he knew about life was the same thing he knew about death. When people reach their deathbed, they're more often than not inclined to bullshit themselves about who they were, about how they lived. So Richard's final goal in life was to not die under those circumstances. There are plenty of bad people who thought they were good in their last days. People who thought they were adventurous when they've done nothing. And there are people who thought they totally nailed it when they did the complete opposite. It was something he learned over time. Encountering, encountering five people who died, three of them family members, one of them in a car wreck. another person in an overdose. It was in their mutterings of their last words is when he heard it. Their final thoughts. He accepted that most people wanted the same things. The comfort of company. talked about themselves in ways that no one perceived them. That was when he realized that he didn't want to reach the same fate. By most clinical circumstances, Richard was a well-adjusted man. He had appropriate coping skills. He had appropriate coping skills. And no, no one was perfect. But Richard certainly had enough of a grasp of reality to know what was up. But still, he didn't want any undetected weaknesses to spur in his last moments and cause him to project a life that he never lived. It was his greatest fear. Richard decided to do was to go to a therapist. He's tried several, but none of them were really really a good fit. The first one he met was professional enough, definitely knew their terms and their phrases uh, that they learned from textbooks, but didn't quite understand on a human level the things that Richard was going through. Another therapist he met. Someone Richard could certainly get chummy with. But really didn't quite have a clue and had to cultivate good mental health. So that led him to the final therapist he would ever see Dr. Herman. office was not far from the Delaware County Community College campus, his alma mater. So we met Dr. Herman, and it was uh, casual enough, just being like, oh, you're Dr. Herman? It's just like, yeah, yeah, and you're uh, Richard, yeah? Richard's like, yeah, that's me. So they had a nice chat in the beginning talked about his goals, keeping his secret goal of what he wanted from his deathbed to himself. They both graduated from Delaware County Community College, so they had a lot in common in a regional level. And they felt comfortable enough to keep meeting. first several months started started off like many therapy sessions uh, just a therapist getting to know the patient. Richard talked about his traumas, his experiences, his coping mechanisms. And then Richard started to discuss his fears. Things that were deep-seated in him. Things that he he was afraid to address that Herman tried to coax out of him. There was a mutual trust that started to build. Richard was starting to trust Dr. Herman as a therapist. But Dr. Herman can tell that Richard had a philosophical goal. That he was a seeker of knowledge. Dr. Herman fancied himself as a seeker of knowledge as well. And whenever they'd break into philosophy, they would get into it. And not just breaking down concepts and mental constructs into smaller pieces to dissect. No, they would try to build and explore new concepts, new arguments, new ways of thinking. in all the ways two individuals possibly could. What Richard didn't quite detect is that uh, Dr. Herman was kind of probing him. Sure, he knew intelligent people in his life, but certainly not enough people to really get into the nitty-gritty of philosophy and what all this life shit is really about. two years into their therapy sessions, Richard was ready to unveil his ultimate philosophical quest, the thing that kept him up at night. He talked about the circumstances he wanted on his deathbed, to know exactly who he was and how he fit into everything. finding Dr. Herman that many people assumed that when you're on your deathbed you were struck with a sudden clarity in your literal final moment just to be all like oh I get it but Richard knew that wasn't always the truth in fact it wasn't the truth more often than not this was something Dr. Herman also knew Way people would talk about themselves, not really having a fair grip on reality. Not the kind that him and Richard wanted. So Dr. Herman was willing to help out Richard. In his journey and his quest. And as a professional, Dr. Herman would do what he could to withhold any callous judgments were any short-sighted assumptions. But when he understood what Richard's ultimate goal was, he thought that it could be a little bit more honest. Alright, Richard, I admire and respect what you're trying to do. But there's kind of... Oh, never mind. Forget it. Richard, leaned forward. No, no, what is it? Go ahead. And Dr. Herman was just like, well, it's not, it's not like a big deal or anything. I don't want you to, I don't want you to be self-conscious or anything. And Richard said, no, no, it's quite all right, please. And Dr. Herman said, well, you salivate a lot. Richard seemed a bit puzzled. Well, I'd like to think I salivate as much as anyone else. Dr. Herman said, Yeah, well, you, you like make it a statement. I mean, you're finally, you're probably fondling your mouth faucets and in your inner cheeks as we speak. Richard felt caught. As they were talking, Richard was using the tip of his tongue to poke his little mouse, mouth faucets in his inner cheeks the ones that secrete saliva. And Dr. Herman said, yeah, and you always, like, you always, like, make, like, those animal Lecter noises when you're sucking up saliva and all that. Richard said, well, you know, I my mouth generates a lot of saliva, and I don't do that often, but when I do, it's, uh, so I can have less saliva in your mouth, you know? I don't... It's not on purpose... My whole purpose of doing it is to not have saliva, so that it totally goes against your argument. And then Dr. Herman leaned forward and he said, Richard, look down at your tie. Richard looked down and saw what Dr. Herman was referring to. There were little droplets of saliva all over his tie. All in different sizes like the moons of Saturn. Richard tried to wipe them off real quick, but... they are already absorbed by the tie, it was too late. The stains were there. Richard was shocked, to the point where he lightly put his hand over his mouth, then paused looked at his fingers and saw that they were wet with saliva, because he had so much goddamn drool flowing out of his mouth, and then he sucked it back up in that Hannibal Lecter fashion. Then Dr. Herman started to say, like, look, Richard, it's not, like, it's okay, you know, I'm not judging again, I don't think this is, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, you know, I think... But based on how you wanted to die, how you want, want to live, you want to know everything. You want a tight grip of reality and you don't want any bullshit flowing through your head as you die. Which I totally respect, man. I totally respect. Dr. Herman's repeated use of the word totally made Richard suspect that he had a hippie streak. And it made him a bit more cautious. Dr. Herman said, "Look, it's, you know, it's cool, you know. Whatever, man. You know, you, you know, look, here's the thing. How here's how I feel about people and life and society and all that jazz. Like we're all mammals, you know. That's something we all have to accept and most people don't. They want to wear clothes, they want to have fancy dinners, but we're all just fucking eating and fucking and shitting and just we're, you know, we're just all hanging out. No one has anything figured out, not really." So so what if you salivate? Who cares? I say lean into it. Embrace it. Make it a hobby. You know, be proud of it. Again, Richard was fairly well adjusted. There's a lot of dark things about himself and his experiences that he put a lot of work into to cope with. But this new saliva thing, he was just like, Huh. Ah, no way. He was appalled by Dr. Herman's diagnosis. So he stood up and was like, Alright, I'm getting I'm getting out of here. And Dr. Herman was just like, Wait man, you don't gotta do that. We made so much progress, you know, this is like the first like big breakthrough really, you know. You pretty much got your shit together, you know, but this is something we can talk about. We can really like hash this out. You can actually get to that goal we we're going for. Richard's like, no, I'm just going to go. You obviously don't know what you're talking about. You just just took too much acid at Woodstock. Whatever, I can't do it, man. And then Dr. Hermos was like, I wasn't even live during Woodstock. I don't know what. And Richard was like, I got to go. I'm leaving. Goodbye. So Richard stormed out and walked down the sidewalk. Little droplets of saliva leaving a trail as he went down. It took him weeks to really think about Dr. Herman's diagnosis. At first he dismissed it, just like, oh, that guy didn't know what he was talking about, he's full of shit, whatever, man. But then he thought, no, wait. That's exactly- I'm bullshitting myself, aren't I? I was called out for something that I did, and I'm pretending it wasn't real. Maybe I should embrace that I salivate, I can make it part of my identity. And that's precisely what he did. to salivate all over the place. He looked up little recipes on Pinterest on how to make adhesives with saliva. He would make little envelopes and stamps. And he made his own version of glue in the way that people brew beer or make wine or something. Was called Richard's uh, sticky glue, made from spit. Eventually, he developed a very unique calendar system with his saliva. Not a calendar system per se, but he took all these little vials and he d- salivated in them. And if he sealed them quickly enough tell exactly what he ate that day and what he was going through that day. Like, ah, this was Wednesday, March 31st. I had a really great tuna salad. Eventually, his whole apartment started to stink like saliva. Little vials and little saliva projects everywhere. it's been three months since the last time we saw Dr. Herman it was something he felt bad about he wouldn't say Dr. Herman was a soulmate but they definitely had a bond for sure like they were entwined by destiny kindred spirits if you would and in that moment of lamenting Dr. Herman he walked right through the door. Oh, I'm I'm sorry I didn't I didn't knock or anything. Richard said, "No, no, it's fine. It's great. I'm really happy to see you, actually." And Doctor Herman was just like, "Oh, good. I was yeah, I was thinking about you, and I tried calling, but you wouldn't answer." And Richard was just like, "Yeah, yeah, I've been busy. You know, I haven't even been brushing my teeth." And then Doctor Herman was just like, "Oh, that's uh, is that that's not great." And Richard was like, "No, but let me show you what I was working on. See, when I don't brush my teeth, it helps me salivate." Check it out. And then Richard took Dr. Her- Doc- Richard took Dr. Herman on a tour of all his little saliva projects, all really gross and really thorough. And Dr. Herman was just like, "Jesus, Richard, what are you, what are you doing with all this?" And then Richard was just like, "Well, I." you know, I took your advice, you know, I, you said I salivated a lot, so I leaned into it, and I realized that I had, like, some sort of gift, I guess, I guess I'm really talented at salivating, so I just used, put it to good use, I did all these little projects, and I'm retired anyway, so I don't have to, like, go to work or anything, so I can spend all my time just salivating, it's fucking great, you know, even when I'm not working on projects, I just kind of kick back and just swish up saliva in my mouth, and then Dr. Herman says, Jesus, Richard, this was not what I was talking about. And Richard said, Yeah, but you said lean into it though. And Dr. Herman said, Yeah, well lean into it, but like don't be a fucking creep about it, you know? Nothing wrong with having a hobby or sense of purpose, but goddamn man, I was just I just meant like accept that you're a mammal and that you salivate just like everyone else. And Richard said, No, that's not. No, you said I was gross. And then Dr. Herman said, I did not say you were gross. That's false. Richard felt it coming on again. He didn't quite know what it was, but it was the innate survival sense to protect his own bullshit. It was a feeling that everyone was capable of. And the people who were aware of it were better off. There was a time when Richard was aware of it, but unfortunately for Richard, his bullshit radar was down and out. He lost himself without knowing it, which is usually how it goes, so he just started to scream at Dr. Herman, like, just get out, just get the fuck out of here, and Dr. Herman was just like, what would... well come on man we can talk about it we can, get, we can get the therapy sessions again it'll be okay it'll be okay Richard I want to help Richard said get the fuck out of here and Dr. Herman said Richard please Richard said go and he started to spit at him and you know Dr. Herman didn't want to be spit at so he left quickly Richard slammed the door Dr. Herman looked at the door in his apartment shrugged inside and then left, never to see Herman again, never to see Richard again, and then Richard said, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly how I want it, you know, I think it's fucking great, now I'm alone with all my spit, and it's really cool, and that's how Richard spent that next year, surrounded by his spit, but it escalated. started to coat it on the walls and the floors. He considered considered it a protective shield all over his apartment. But his health started to decline because he never, never bathed or brushed his teeth and people can often die of filth. Like all mammals, Richard knew that the end was coming. So in his last weeks, he committed to his most ambitious saliva project. He spit all over himself in his bed, and started to nestle himself into a little saliva cocoon. He ate a lot of skittles to do it, but it happened. It was really gross and smelly and sticky. And then he lied there, ready, prepared. The final moments of his life were upon him. And being unaware of how he lost his his sense of self through his obsession... he couldn't be further off point with how he wanted to die to have a tight grip on reality and to know exactly what was up so in his final moment his last thought was "Uh, yeah I really nailed that life shit I did already explain at the top of the episode that this is a retelling of a lost episode, but I'm very fascinated about what story details stayed and which ones vanished and how the stories transformed. Anyway, this next story is called Marionettes Cigarettes. Max was, arguably, the greatest puppeteer in the Pacific Northwest. His specialty was marionettes. He carved them himself, built his own sets, and wrote his own little plays. He had a brief career in show business and other types of set design when he was building puppets for, on behalf of other people, but marionettes were always his true passion. He once described in an interview that the thing about marionettes is that when they dance, they defy gravity. Big break was. He would just chuckle and say, "Ah, artists never get a big break, not the real ones." But for him, it was when he did an adaptation of Waiting for Godot. His specialty was solo shows, but his waiting. He had some. He had some colleagues and friends help with the puppeteering, some extra set of hands. His version of Waiting for Godot got rate of reviews. How oh, since they were marionettes, they captured the emptiness of that play. But the way he moved the marionettes, it brought that human quality that makes the performance so special. Now there are other more adept uh Technical puppeteers out there. But Max was really great at having marionettes sit and philosophize. He once obsessed over this one cafe based play. It was a one act play, it took place at a table outside of a cafe just two characters talking throughout. And he really wanted to master the ability of these marionettes to sit and have their seating uh, positions reflect their body language and their souls. There's one well-known puppeteer magazine article I did claim that he was the best at that but that's something Max always believed that his puppets had souls it's the life of the artist to bring life to his art was his grand purpose in life but being a marionette puppeteer he often thought about fate yes he was a puppeteer manipulating these puppet strings to do what they were meant to do he would never say he would control any puppets but he often thought about the puppet strings he couldn't see that were tugging him and the people in his life and the people he loved and the people that he never has or never will meet and though this uh, idea brought him a fair amount of existential dread he was grateful of Thank God of a Marionette Puppeteer But not all of his performances were highbrow He would often has, have various stints of kids' shows when he had to pull cash Simple things like fairy tales, you know Little Red Red Riding Hood, The Three Little Pigs. He would only do fairy tale stories and included a wolf. Because even though he did those performances fairly for cash, he still wanted some amount of artistic integrity to exist in everything he did. And that's why he smoked cigarettes at these kids' shows. Kids auditorium, he would just binge-smoke. He binge-smoked at all of his uh, performances. People who have worked with him or watched him work were amazed that he could manipulate these marionettes, and yet still toss a cigarette and light a new one and keep smoking it throughout the performance seamlessly as he manipulated these marionettes. some critics would say that uh, that was just part of his flair, part of the human component of his performances. But he was often confronted for smoking these cigarettes at these kids' shows. The principal or the teachers or anyone from the staff, anyone who didn't have a stake in booking him, but were just like, dude, you're fucking smoking with all these kids around in school? What what the fuck are you doing, man? Max would just scoff at them be like don't you understand I am an artist I smoke when I damn please because I'm profound when I'm when I damn please Anyone who defies me in my smoking will never understand what it means to be an artist what it means to art To defy my art is to defy nature itself Anyone who does that is my mortal enemy, and I will not work for them under any circumstances. That rant worked about seventy percent of the time, but that other thirty percent that knew it was up were just like, "Dude, just get the fuck out of here!" Like, don't. We can literally call. We can call other people to, you know, do puppets. You know, there's a lot of puppeteers in the Northwest. Just, you know, just get out of here. So one day, after a a performance he did at the Portland Art Museum, he was approached by a man named Sal. He was just like, oh, Max, I fucking love the show, man. I love your work so much. Max was someone who knew that his performances were the shit. He didn't say thank you, or, oh, I appreciate the compliment, or, oh, I'm so glad you like my work, thank you. He was just like, yes, and... And Sal said, well, I want to book you for a show, um, you know, it's a, just a, it's a private, uh, private party in Lake Oswego, um, you know, only like an hour tops, um, we'll pay you super well. Max agreed to get lunch with him. hear more about the offer, Max would only do bookings in person, He we'd never discuss it on the phone, or through email, it had to be somewhere in one of the many cafes in Portland, on a table outside, so we can smoke cigarettes freely, and not be bothered. So Max and uh, Sal got to talking. Sal was asking about his process, and Max went on to tell him that he lived in a comfortable studio apartment. apartment, A comfortable studio apartment in Portland, which by Portland standards is obscene and amazing. And it was co-opted as a studio, and he would build his own sets, make his own puppets. Now Every puppet and every set had its own identity and soul to it. for him. He just tried to bring those souls to life. Sal was just like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we could really use that for the party. Max inhaled some of the cigarettes. He was like, so what is, tell me about this party exactly? So Sal said, well, it's like a small affair, you know, it's just some couple of boys hanging out, you know. was like uh huh he didn't really like uh that insinuation in the Pacific Northwest and Max said oh so a couple of the boys okay and Sal said yeah so we just wanna we just wanna have a puppet show that's all we think you're great and it'd be really cool so it'd be something really special a night to remember I would say so, okay, alright. Sal said the price of the, uh show. And it was a lot of money. uh, Way more than Max was used to. And Max said, huh, sounds like a lucrative deal, at least. And Sal said, yeah, but there's just one other thing. Max was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And he said, okay, well, what is it? I said, well, you know, we know that you either, you know, write your own plays or, uh, you know, just adapt uh, uh, stuff, but we really feel that it would be cool if, you know, if we could like, you know, shout out random things and then you do those things, you know, not quite like heckling or anything, but just like, you know, when we say jump, the puppets jump, you know, like things like that. Max had to chew on this for a bit. Like he said many times, he doesn't control the actions of the puppets. At most, he just steers them, if that... Really, he was just trying to flesh out what the souls of the puppets would be. They made their own decisions. He had no say in it. But then again, the paycheck was nice, and... Max did, like, a challenge. The thrill of a challenge probably brought him so far in the puppeteering world. To accept the risks involved. And to really push himself in uncharted territory. So, Max said, Okay, I'll do it at Lake Oswego. Max was still had an inherent discomfort comfort about, the, about the show. He had a bad feeling about it. But he needed the money because schools would stop booking him. Because they didn't want him to binge smoke in front of kids. So he selected two puppets, uh, Dave and Stacy, and his coffee shop set that he was so well known for. He knew he was entering uncharted territory, so he wanted to have some anchors. These two puppets were not his favorite puppets per se, but their souls were vivid enough so that there was a sort of comfort to it that he can roll with. felt like a long drive to Lake Oswego from Portland, for some reason. Maybe because of the oncoming dread, who knows. So we rolled up to the Lake Oswego house. Or, sorry, not a house, a mansion. It was huge. Of Mercedes in the driveway. And Sal was outside, uh, ready to greet Max as he arrived. Ha! Huh, grad? Great, great! You made it. Awesome." And Max said, "Yes, I. Uh, me and my cast have made it all right." And Sal was like, "Great! We're just gonna set up in the re- in the rec room." down to the basement Max didn't trust uh, how Celtic uh, the crosses he saw on the way were but they went down to the rec room there was about 20 people there all in little chairs pointed in one wall Max started to set up the set it didn't take too long he was very detail oriented about how he did his sets and his shows but for the sake of this gig he was a bit more hurried with it So he dimmed the lights and the show began. He always worked with pre-written material and did the voices for the characters and everything. But this was open territory, so what he did was he uh, started with Stacey and Dave meeting at a coffee shop and chatting like they haven't seen each other in a while. Stacy was just like, "Oh, Dave, it's so good to see you." Dave was just like, "Oh, yeah, huh? thanks, Stacy. Yeah, you know, there was, a, there was a dust allergies or a bitch, am I right?" Stacy was just like, "Huh, yeah, tell me about it." You know, I just talk. Just where have you been, Dave? Was just been like, "Oh, same old, same old, you." Stacy was like, "I'm good, I'm good. I just got back from Dublin, you know. And it's funny, I just read Ulysses for the first time a couple months ago." just really captured the spirit of Dublin for me and when I went there in person you know it was you know the spirit of Dublin that was in Joyce's work was present there like he really tapped into a timeless beautiful thing and Dave was just like oh yeah cool one time I saw a poster of a bunch of uh, bar urinals in Dublin from different bars and I was just like yeah uh, that's hilarious really cool Max enjoyed toying with the friction between these two characters. They had different sensibilities, but that's always—it always struck in- interesting conversations with them. And then one dude shouted in the back, "Ah, oh, give her, give her a kiss, kiss!" Max was thrown off his performance when he heard it. And then he heard some chanting from the audience. Just be like, "Kiss, kiss, kiss, kiss." So, uh, reluctantly, with a hardcore reluctance, Max obliged. He got Stacy and Dave to kiss. One of them said, keep going. And so Max did. But then Max could sense the discomfort of the marionettes and separated them. Didn't make sense for him to get them to kiss, just all of a sudden... So we just, uh, made something up in their conversation to contextualize it. Stacy was just like, I don't know, I don't know where that came from. Dave was like, yeah, it's just like we did it out of the blue for no reason. You know, I think you're cool and all, but, you know, I'd rather take things slow, you know? Stacy was like, yeah, agreed. One of the back lights of the rec room turned on to light up a billiard table. Two dudes from the audience just stood up, and just started to play billiards. Not paying attention to the show, obviously not into the marionettes, the sounds of the clacking billiards were like nails into Max's brain, and another audience member uh, just started to shout, have some sex!" And I got cheers from the audience, like, Yeah, have some sex. Max was stunned. He didn't know how to approach this to contextualize in the plot, or for the character's sake, or anything.
1: And then the audience
0: just started to chant, Sex, 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 sex. So it's ex- that's exactly what happened. Both Max and, uh, I mean, uh, both Dave and Stacy just started to do it right there in the cafe. Stacy was just like, I don't know why I'm so compelled to do this in public and in a cafe, in a, pr- in a busy corner. And Dave was like, Yeah, I me mean neither. And the marionette sex scene was like a hardcore, hardcore Team America shit. And it brought a tear to Max's eye. He belittled his beloved characters, all to the sounds of clacking billiards. So the hour came and went. Sal wrote a check for Max, and he was like, wow, that was amazing, like, I've seen your, you know, I've seen a fair amount of your plays, like, if not in person, then certainly on YouTube, but, wow, you really, that was, you're you're a master. Max nodded, uh, usually ready to embrace such a steamy compliment, but he was just like, yeah, thanks, thanks. So he took the check and shoved it in his pocket, and Sal was just like, hey, do you want to stick around for the, you know, party, you know, probably got some more people coming over, Uh, you know, we're just going to have a good time, we're just kicking it. And then Max was like, no, no, I gotta, I gotta get going. Drove through. He drove from Lake Oswego to Portland, his little slice of the Northwest. The fastest he's ever driven—50 miles an hour. He felt like he belittled and defiled his characters. For what? For a hack performance? For? bunch of people who were probably some iteration of a Nazi. He felt degraded. He made it back to his apartment. And his usual wish ritual after a show. When he'd bring his gear back. He'd unpack everything put it all away on its right place, and then he would just, then he would go to bed safe and sound, but this time he just dropped everything by the entrance and crashed on his bed. He couldn't sleep because he kept getting up to vomit. his characters, but he defiled himself as an artist, for the grand pursuit, as it were. So when it was starting to roll around 3am, he left his bathroom and glanced at his front entrance and saw that the cases that held the marionettes were gone. I could have sworn, no, 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 I didn't, I, I, I didn't put them away. Fall out? Are they still at the house? He looked by the cases and see if they fell out or something. He, uh, went outside his apartment and looked around his car. That's weren't in the car or anything. He went back into his apartment, but the door was locked. Weird, I didn't lock it at all. He had a key with him and unlocked it quickly, but he couldn't find those two marionettes. He truly did not want to go back to that house again, let alone see Sal again. So I just said, you know, I'll deal with it in the morning, whatever. So he lied on his bed. And it felt like that he was falling asleep. But it also seemed like he was hearing footsteps of some sort. Like little pieces of wood clacking around. felt like he was about to pass out, he can feel a tight nylon grip around his neck, suffocating him. At first he thought it was a dream, but then when he realized that he couldn't breathe, that's when he truly started to freak out. He tried to pull the nylon off, but it was no use. corner of his bed, he saw the silhouette of a marionette, a window was behind him, but he knew that it was Dave staring at him, with his blank, plastic eyes, But Max knew his marionette knew enough to knew the dread behind them, the pain the thirst for blood. Max still started to squirm try to wriggle himself out. Eventually he reached back and he grabbed Stacy choking him and then he tossed her across the room. He leaped out of his bed and went to his kitchen area, grabbed one of his knives. He tried to turn on the lights, but they wouldn't turn on. He tried to leave his apartment, but his door was sealed shut, and his key wouldn't work. All of a sudden, he felt an intense stabbing on his leg, and he fell to the ground. He leaned back against the wall, and he could see the two marionettes staring at him, lunging at him, each with knives. It pained him inside to attack his marionettes. But he went for it anyway. It wasn't in his heart to try to destroy them or break them. But he thought of a different idea. When he had a good enough grip on them, he cut the nylon strings on their backs. He received a lot of stab wounds in the process. And he was bleeding out and his back was against the wall. You could see the marionettes walk slowly toward him. He was too weak to move. And then Max just said, I cut your strings, you're free, you can go. The silhouettes of the marionette stopped. They lowered their knives, looked at each other, and then they started to hold hands. They looked back at Max, and then backed away into the darkness. Max crawled to his nightstand where his phone was, and he turned on the flashlight. The marionettes were nowhere to be found. He cleansed his wounds with hydrogen peroxide and band-aids, and he went by his window to open it. He started to smoke a cigarette while opening the window, looking out at Portland, the city that he knew so well. He sighed and coughed up a little bit of blood. Thought about how the strings of fate tug us all. thought that his two marionettes could define their own destinies better than he ever could okay this last story is called. Major Bear. Sam's entire life, an entire upbringing, he was taught that the United States Army was a force of good, that it was a place for young people to receive some discipline, to see the world, and to fight any threats against this great nation, the United States of America. But not long after he joined, when he received his first station uh, at vaccination sites, he had a strong inkling that he made the worst decision of his life. This is before meeting people who were forever traumatized by needless war and combat. Before meeting veterans who were fucked over by VA hospitals. No, but when Sam was in the military, it just felt that something wasn't right. And he didn't know anything else beyond that. other than that feeling came from that very deep, deep place inside that you should really listen to when you can hear it. But he did like the idea of helping out at vaccination sites, even though it was him doing a lot of sitting and doing a lot of paperwork. people not thinking the, uh, COVID virus was that big of a deal, or people think it was too boring and wanting to see some action in Afghan or something, but there's a rumor going around that, uh major named Major Bear was going to visit the nearby base where everyone was residing. It was a big deal because apparently Major Bear had a huge reputation, had a pretty high kill count, and no one ever crossed Major Bear got away from it scot-free. So everyone at the base was standing in a line, uh, waiting for a major bear. Major Bear Everyone who took the rumors seriously Waiting in bated breath And then Major Bear arrived And He was a literal bear It was like he was a circus performing bear Just a bear that just started to walk up Like he was trapped in a zoo With like a little old-fashioned army helmet on him We have, really? We have to fucking listen to a bear? This grizzly bear? He just doesn't even, doesn't even know where he is. What are we, what are we doing here? And there's one army officer who joined around the same time Sam did that Sam was, uh, pretty chummy with. He just stood out of line. He was just like, "Well, you shitting me? This is bullshit. We gotta listen to this fucking bear. And then Lieutenant Dan just said, Stand down. And then the Sam's friend was just like, no, no, this is bullshit. We were fucking swindled into being fucking stormtroopers, man. Get the fuck out of here with this shit. Do you even know what's going on in this country? Like, what are we even doing here? Eventually, like, the bear roared. And attacked Sam's friend. And mauled him viciously in front of everyone. That was the last time that day anyone questioned Major Bear's authority so overtly. But Sam got to thinking about it. Being as horrified as anyone else by it. It made him did feel good to participate in the vaccination trials. Or the, vaccina- the vaccination site, rather he didn't have to be in the army to do that. He could just be a... Do something good at any, any under any circumstances. So he decided to listen to that deep part of himself. Thought, you know what? Army's not for me. I gotta get the fuck out of here. So he we went to Lieutenant Dan's office. And he said they wanted to, uh sign from the army and uh, submit some resignation papers. Dan just looked at him and he just laughed at him. <clears throat> it was a real, strangely menacing chuckle. You really want to leave? And then Sam, Sam said, yeah, I thought about it really well. I think there's, you know, Out of respect for you and the military, it's just not right for me. Dan chuckled again in that really weird, surreal, menacing way. And he said, all right, well, that's fine with me. But you know what? Why don't I bring these resignation papers to uh, Major Bear? and why don't you come with me so you can tell them yourself? place Major Bear was uh, residing was underground one floor underground but going down that stairwell just the steps resonated and it felt so long to Sam because he didn't know where he was walking to but then he saw it it was a large cage similar to a cage match cage where Major Bear resided When they entered, just clawing at the cage. And Dan and Sam both walked inside and Dan was just like Oh, you don't gotta be afraid, it's okay. You won't bite. So they both walked in. The bear was sniffing at them, feeling really agitated. Major Bear's food bowl. Then he saw that it was empty. And then Sam thought to himself, So that's how they do it. They keep us hungry. Dan stepped away and locked the cage door that they entered through. Sam turned around real quick, realizing what was going on. Dan said, I'll let you two hash this out. And then he chuckled again. In that surreal, menacing chuckle. And then went upstairs. Sam turned and looked at the bear. who roared at him. His paw was larger than, than his head. Meanwhile, Dan was, uh, ...up outside, outside the entrance to the stairwell. And he was smoking a cigarette... ...listening to the roaring bear sounds. We went on for about four minutes... ...then by the end of his cigarette... There was just silence. He saw some cadets walk by, and he was just like, hey, you guys, come with me. We got some cleanup to do. So they all went down to the stairwell to where the cage was. And they looked down, and they saw the bear lying down, all bloody almost unconscious, panting fastly and heavily, and Sam, kneeling beside him, caressing his fur, also bloody but in much better shape than the bear. Dan unlocked the door and went in, couldn't believe what he saw. The cadets were stunned as well, given Major Bear's uh, reputation. Sam looked over at one of the cadets and pointed at him. And he said, Major Bear needs immediate medical attention. Go get it now. And then the cadet left and ran upstairs. And Dan said, Hey, don't go up there. And then Sam said, Do it. The cadet con- continued on. Sam stood up and brushed himself off. None of the cadets could make eye contact with him, the lieutenant was looking down on the floor, and as Sam was walking by, he stood side by side with the lieutenant. looked directly at him and Dan couldn't help but meet his gaze and then Sam just said Major Bear accepted my resignation and then Sam went upstairs and left the base and that was the last that base uh ever solve, Sam. Well, that was Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. I hope you enjoyed that fairly unique episode. Cause I sure did. Wherever you're on the world, whatever you're going through, whatever the people you know are going through, whatever the people you don't know are going through. I hope you all have a good summer and live it to the fullest. Good night.